1: Something is wrong with our system of education, but what is it? In this
0: episode, we learn that the traditional system of education was designed in the industrial age and is now outdated and ineffective. Let's listen in to the six problems with our school system.
1: Something is wrong with our system of education, but what is it? Well, we send our children to school to prepare them for the real world, which is changing very, very fast. But our schools haven't changed much for hundreds of years. In fact, thought leaders from around the world agree that the current system of education was designed in the industrial age mainly to churn out factory workers. And this industrial age mentality of mass production and mass control still runs deep in schools. Industrial Age Values We educate children by batches and govern their lives by ringing bells. All day long, students do nothing but follow instructions. Sit down, take out your books, turn to page 40, solve problem number three, stop talking. At school, you're awarded for doing exactly what you are told. These are industrial age values that were really important for factory workers. Their success depended on following instructions and doing exactly what they were told. But in today's world, how far can you get by simply following instructions? The modern world values people who can be creative, who can communicate their ideas and collaborate with others. But our children don't get a chance to develop such skills in a system that's based on industrial age values. Lack of autonomy and control At school, our children experience a complete lack of autonomy and control. Every minute of a child's life is tightly controlled by the system. But in today's world, if you're doing important work, then you're managing your own time. You're making your own decisions regarding what to do and when to do it. But life at school looks very different. The system is sending a dangerous message to our children that they are not in charge of their own lives. They just have to follow whatever is laid down instead of taking charge and making the most of their lives. Experts believe autonomy is incredibly important for children. It's no wonder, then, that our children are bored and demotivated by school. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were told exactly what to do for every minute of your life? Inauthentic learning Most of the learning that happens in schools today is not authentic because it relies on memorization and rote learning. The system defines a generic set of knowledge that all children must know. And then, every few months, we measure how much has been retained by administering exams. We know that such learning is not authentic because most of it is gone the day after the exam. Learning can be much deeper and more authentic. It can be so much more than just memorization and retention. But that's the only thing we measure, and test scores are the only thing we value. This has created an extremely unhealthy culture for students, parents and teachers. Children are going through endless hours of tuitions, staying up all night memorizing useless facts that they will forget very soon. No room for passions and interests. We have an extremely standardized system where each child must learn the same thing at the same time in the same way as everyone else. This doesn't respect the basic fact of being human, that each of us is unique and different in our own way. We all have different passions and interests. And the key to fulfillment in life is to find your passion. But do the schools of today help our children find and develop their passion? There seems to be no room in the current education system for the most important questions in a child's life. What am I good at? What do I want to do in life? How do I fit into this world? The system doesn't seem to care. There are so many greatly talented people who failed in the traditional school system. Fortunately, they were able to overcome these failures, but not everyone can. We have no measure for how much talent, how much potential goes unrecognized in the current system. Differences in how we learn Each of us is also different in how we learn, in how much time we take to learn something, and what tools and resources work best for us. But the system has no room for such differences. So, if you're a bit slow in learning something, you are considered a failure when all you needed was a bit more time to catch up. Lecturing In the current system, children are lectured for more than five hours a day. But there are a few big problems with lecturing. Sal Khan from Khan Academy calls lecturing a fundamentally dehumanizing experience. Thirty kids with fingers on their lips not allowed to interact with each other. Also, in any given classroom, different students are at different levels of understanding. Now, whatever the teacher does, there are bound to be students who are either bored because they are ahead or confused because they are behind. Because of the internet and digital media, our children have at their fingertips all the information in the world. Technology has made it possible for anyone to learn anything. But for fear of losing control, the system is not leveraging these incredible resources our system of education which evolved in the industrial age has become outdated and ineffective if we want to prepare our children for the modern world if we want learning to be effective and engaging then there's no doubt that we need to fundamentally change our system of education and from another
0: source let's listen in to what they have to say
1: resist
2: much obey little once unquestioning obedience once fully enslaved Once fully enslaved, no nation, state, city of this earth ever afterward resumes its liberty. These were the words of caution which the great poet Walter Whitman offered to his fellow Americans. For Whitman recognized that crucial to a free and flourishing society are men and women who are willing to question and even resist authority when necessary. But today very few of us live by the ideal espoused by Whitman. Rather blind obedience is the norm. We have become populations of sheep, easily to be herded into the chains of tyranny. But what has led those of us in the West to largely shun the advice of Whitman? In this video, we will examine two institutions that have played an integral role in the breeding of a passive citizenry, the compulsory state-run education system, which in North America is called the public school system, and the mainstream media. Public schooling is viewed as one of the shining lights of the modern Western world. Who could question the value of an institution that provides free and compulsory education for all? But as with many institutions of our day, the textbook picture of how the institution should work greatly diverges from the reality of how it does work. If public schools taught individuals how to think, if they promoted intellectual curiosity and produced citizens healthy in body and mind, then few would question their value. But beneath the veneer presented by the bureaucrats that run this institution, a darker reality emerges. Or, as John Taylor Gatto, a former teacher turned one of public schooling's greatest critics, writes Schools are intended to produce formulaic human beings whose behavior can be predicted and controlled. To a very great extent, schools succeed in doing this, but in a national order in which the only successful people are independent, self reliant, confident, and individualistic, The products of schooling are irrelevant. Well-schooled people are irrelevant. They can sell film and razor blades, push paper and talk on telephones, or sit mindlessly before a flickering computer terminal. But as human beings, they are useless. Useless to others and useless to themselves. Noam Chomsky echoed this sentiment, writing in his book, Understanding Power. Given the external power structure of the society in which they function, the institutional role of the schools for the most part is just to train people for obedience and conformity, and to make them controllable and indoctrinated. To some, this may sound like heresy, but a study of history reveals that this was the intention from the very start. The state-run school systems in the West were modeled off the factory style of education first introduced in Prussia in the early 1700s. What shocks, writes Gatto, is that we should so eagerly have adopted one of the very worst aspects of Prussian culture an educational system deliberately designed to produce mediocre intellects, to hamstring the inner life, to deny students appreciable leadership skills, and to ensure docile and incomplete citizens, all in order to render the populace manageable. Albert Einstein, an individual who reached heights of genius rarely seen, did not credit his compulsory schooling with his intellectual development. Reflecting back on his school years, Einstein noted that after completing his final examinations, his interest in the field he would go on to revolutionize was all but dead. I found the consideration of scientific problems, he wrote, distasteful to me for an entire year. Einstein believed that one of the major flaws of compulsory, state-run education systems is their forced style of teaching. It is, in fact, nothing short of a miracle, he wrote that the modern methods of instruction have not yet entirely strangled the holy curiosity of inquiry. It is a very grave mistake to think that the enjoyment of seeing and searching can be promoted by means of coercion and a sense of duty. After well over a decade of indoctrination in the school system, few emerge with a great thirst for knowledge and a curiosity toward the many mysteries of the world. Instead, as Bruce Levine writes in his book Resisting Illegitimate Authority, By the time a student graduates, they have been bred to be passive, to be directed by others, to take seriously the rewards and punishments of authority, to pretend to care about things that they do not care about, and that one is impotent to change one's dissatisfying situation. But if our schooling cannot be relied upon to generate the critical and curious minds needed to protect a society from the actions of corrupted authorities, can the mainstream media play this role? While there has been an increasing skepticism toward this institution in recent years, distaste and distrust toward the mainstream media has a long history. I have given up newspapers, wrote Thomas Jefferson, in exchange for Tacitus and Thucydides, for Newton and Euclid, and I find myself much the happier. Nietzsche, one of the most intellectually free and curious minds of history, was also no fan of the mainstream media. Sick are they always. They vomit their bile and call it a newspaper. Richard Weaver, a professor at the University of Chicago in the first half of the 20th century, found it ironic that while we have freed ourselves from the Earth-centered view of the cosmos, we have all the while dove headlong into an illusory view of the world created by the mainstream media. And while Weaver focuses on newspapers in the following passage, as they were the dominant medium of his day, his words are even more applicable today where modern technology offers far better tools for the manipulation of the masses. A great point is sometimes made of the fact that modern man no longer sees above his head a revolving dome with fixed stars. True enough, but he sees something similar when he looks at his daily newspaper. The newspaper is a man-made cosmos of the world of events around us at the time. For the average reader, it is a construct with a set of significances which he no more thinks of examining than did his pious forebear of the 13th century think of questioning the cosmology. But why does the mainstream media so often choose deception over truth? Noam Chomsky in his book Media Control suggests that like many politicians, the mainstream media is dominated by individuals who adhere to an elitist ideology. The 20th century journalist Walter Lippmann epitomized this view, calling the masses the bewildered herd. In suggesting that one of the main functions of the media is to put this herd in its proper place as passive spectators, not active participants, in the organization of a society. Or, as Chomsky explains, this elitist ideology is built on the notion that the mass of the public are just too stupid to be able to understand things. If they try to participate in managing their own affairs, they're just going to cause trouble. Therefore, it would be immoral and improper to permit them to do this. We have to tame the bewildered herd, not allow the bewildered herd to rage and trample and destroy things. For those of us who are not among the self-anointed elite, the question arises as to whether the controlling of the bewildered herd is done in order to promote a prosperous and flourishing society, or merely to maintain certain institutional structures which favor the elites to the detriment of society at large. This open question only reinforces the need for a more skeptical attitude toward the authority figures of our day. We need, in other words, more anti-authoritarians. It must be stressed that an anti-authoritarian is not someone who, in place of a passive acceptance of authority, adopts a passive rejection of all authority. Many institutions and authority figures serve a beneficial purpose, and therefore should be accepted. But anti-authoritarians recognize that consensus does not mean truth, that power corrupts, that people lie, and that some institutions, in the words of Chomsky, have no moral justification. They are just there in order to preserve certain structures of power and domination. Recognizing these undeniable facts, the anti-authoritarian is willing to look at all authority figures with a healthy dose of skepticism, and potentially even resist their commands, if such authority proves corrupt and harmful to the well-being of a society. Or as Henry David Thoreau wrote, If the machine of government is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then, I say, break the law. But should we fear a world with more anti-authoritarians, the obedience bred into us in school, and the blind deference to authority promoted by the talking heads of the mainstream media, may lead some to view anti-authoritarians as a threat to the stability of society, but nothing could be further from the truth. Anti-authoritarians are the crucial protectors of a flourishing society, for as the author C.P. Snow noted, When you think of the long and gloomy history of man, you will find more hideous crimes have been committed in the name of obedience than have ever been committed in the name of rebellion. Malevolent authority, combined with a passive citizenry, is the recipe for tyranny, and so anti-authoritarians should not be feared or ostracized. They should be welcomed. They are the individuals who raise the alarm and awaken the slumbering masses to the existence of corrupt authority. A society without a healthy number of anti-authoritarians, or a society in which anti-authoritarians are shunned and silenced, is a society that has chosen the comfort of illusions over the desire for truth, and is therefore a society paving the way for its own destruction. Or as the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire cautioned, So long as the people do not care to exercise their freedom, those who wish to tyrannize will do so. For tyrants are active and ardent, and will devote themselves in the name of any number of gods, religious or otherwise, to put shackles upon sleeping men